welcome to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer medium. My name is Nick Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And uh, this week we have quite the show lined up for you. We have uh, not one, but two different interviews. Uh, I was reached out to by the great folks over at Katy, C-A-T-I-E, uh, they are one of really Canada's uh, one of Canada's leading providers. That knowledge broker, I think, is how they frame themselves um, on the issue of HIV/AIDS and other sexually uh, bloodborne and uh, diseases. Mm-hmm. And uh, they reached out to us about the impending ending of uh, some critical funding. Now we've actually talked about this before, Sebastian, because yes. I think it is a fantastic initiative mm-hmm. and that is the federal government announced uh funding it was a big package of funding in the first year it was about 18 million a whole swack load of that went towards testing facilities i.e facilities that do the testing of blood and the other half of it went to community organizations to distribute mm-hmm. those at-home self-testing HIV kits. Yes. But first, Sebastian. Yes. Big news out of Whitlock, Alberta. Okay. Now, if you recall, we mentioned that uh, there were some folks there who were, and I don't want to be too flippant about it, because there were certainly a couple of people Mm -hmm. who were outraged at the audacity of those gays putting their flag on the sidewalk. Right on a flagpole. But there are certainly a lot of people who are like, look, you know, we want to to carve out public spaces from these kinds of declarations of support. You know, we had a similar issue before, and I think it was Norwich, Ontario, banned all non-civic flags. um, And then they reversed their ban by just adding a new flagpole. Right, yes. Which they now put the pride flag on. So Whitlock, there's a mechanism in Alberta where if you get a certain number of signatures, I think it's about 250 uh, for a municipality, you can pose a question that the local council has to then vote uh, or or, or have voted on. And they posed a very similar question. Mm -hmm. They asked uh, folks in Whitlock, um, is essentially should they get rid of their existing rainbow crosswalk and also remove rainbow flags from being um, um, flown uh, in, right. in, in in the town of Whitlock? It's not a very big town. Um, is it from? Is it like banning the rainbow flag altogether, or just off of municipal property? It, it sorry, it's Westlock. I keep saying Whitlock, but it is Westlock. Right. Who are, are um just unsure? Um. Yeah. No. It's the town of Westlock. Westlock. Okay. Now it's worth mentioning that they have about just shy of about five thousand people in the town of Westlock. Right. And about one in five of them came out and voted. Okay. In this particular plebiscite. And uh, it was it was close. It was a 0.9% margin. Right. Um, and if you want to, you're like, wow, that seems close. But what does that translate to? That translates to 25 people. Okay. 25 voters mm-hmm. made all the difference in Westlock, Alberta, with about um, 
663 people voted in favor mm -hmm. of removing the rainbow crosswalk and banning the use of pride flags on um, municipal flagpoles right. compared to the 639 voting against. Now, I know for the queer community in Westlock, this was seen as a bit of a... Um, really an opening attack on public displays of queerness in the town. And they really tried to motivate as many people as they can to, to get out and oppose. But evidently, mm -hmm. a significant number of people felt otherwise. What's the what's the reaction to this in the community so far? Has there been uh, talks of holding another election? Are they going to bring it up to the provincial level? Or is it too soon? To, to well, know? The town council actually has a couple of options on uh, on the, on the table. Now they've mm. got up to forty five days to verify all of those petition signatures, and on a vote that is, you know, the difference is twenty five people. You know, the verification yeah. of signatures is going to be pretty important stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then they are required to pass a first reading of the decision of this. Right. Within about 30 days. Now, it's worth noting that potentially there's two things that could happen here. The right. council could uphold, agree with this plebiscite mm -hmm. uh, and actually pass the bylaw that uh, it, it happens. Or they could not. The right. other option is to call a full vote of the town, essentially make it uh, like an election issue. Right. And, uh, do the same question all over again, um, but with the resources of the municipality put into the actual um, plebiscite. So, you know, it's interesting. At this point, um, no one really knows exactly what's going to happen. Right. But to be honest with our listeners, realistically, it's probably going to pass. These councillors okay. are unlikely to overrule even the slimmest majority Mm -hmm. of their constituents mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i i would like to see a little bit more talk from the people of westlock uh about this because i have seen quite a bit of uh well especially uh queer media sources sort of automatically framing the entire community as being homophobic and i don't necessarily think that's fair i mean for all we know they could just all be libertarian and they could be 100 percent all for the gays but they just don't think municipal dollars should go towards that and if you want to raise your own money to dig your own flagpole and raise your own flag then and and pay for your own street painting then you know have at her i i don't want to jump to the notion that an entire community is homophobic there's many reasons why someone could vote against this and i would rather i would rather hear input than than jump to conclusions about an entire city you know well it's interesting you say that because some of the arguments being put forward for this particular vote is they the ones some of the folks have voted in favor of banning and removing the rainbow crosswalks right their hot take on this is you know the government as an institution of the people uh should be neutral it should have no opinion in either way on any group well you could so, say if it if you don't want it paying for cultural things, and you could also say it should not be funding like the Santa Claus parade or an Easter egg hunt or family it's day. St. Patrick's or, parade. Or, yeah. yeah, like they, they should be either funding none of them or making grants that you have to apply to available but are not guaranteed. Like there, there's got to be a way of doing this 
you like this is something we've said before but the flagpole issue you either let everyone on or you let no one on anything halfway is unfair and a lot of people prefer letting everyone on some people prefer letting nobody on there's there's the issue of if you are going to allow these things who's going to pay for it it is fine uh municipal dollars going towards this it could just be a matter of like we are in a shortfall and we can't afford to upkeep this stuff um, we would like to, but we just can't right now. Like that, that is also a perfectly fair, though unfortunate reason. At which point, you know, the local, if they're not, if they're, if the vote is whether or not the municipality will pay for it versus whether or not it's banned, because those are two different issues saying the municipality will not pay for it. But if you want to pay for it, then that's your business. That's a very different thing from we are not permitting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not permitting it is a little bit, uh, let's say, Eastern European <laughs> under uh, current political, you know, the, the situation there versus, you know, you can do it if you want, but we don't have we're not going to set aside a budget line for it. I think that's a very different statement. Um, and the reasons for that could be multitudinous, but just saying like, no, it's banned in all contexts. I think that's. That's a bit much. If if it was just it's banned in all contexts, then I'd be like, yeah, 5,000 homophobes living in one place. But I don't, I don't think that's what they're doing. I don't think that's what the vote actually is. Well, it's, it now means that the town of Westlock can only raise on their official town flagpoles, federal, provincial, and municipal government flags. And okay. all crosswalks are black okay. and white. Okay. That's what the outcome is. One of the reasons that I have seen, and I'm sure Sebastian, you can add to this, yep. is a small proportion of our community, about one in 10 people, maybe slightly less in, in rural Alberta mm. um, people. So, you know, we're only talking about three or 400 people in this town. That's if every single homosexual got up and voted, they would still be outvoted on this one. Oh, yeah. Um, you know what I mean? And it's just not a huge number of people. And mm. historically, you have been denied jobs because we've been denied jobs because we're gay. We have mm-hmm. been arrested, uh, incriminated. And these crosswalks were a way of local communities saying, look, we know you're in our community and we support you. And we believe that this message is important and you have a welcoming place to be here. Yeah. If they were to say that there's no money for crosswalks or flags because we're putting all that funding into a local community center with medical doctors on staff to help with trans health issues and counseling and, and job assistance. And like, if you were to say, no, 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 we're, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this other thing because to a small degree, and this might be controversial to a small degree, there's a lot of communities that paint a rainbow crosswalk and call it a day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just formative. It's performative. It's virtue signaling. Uh, it's it's a weirdly expensive virtue signal because the the grade of paint you need to paint the road is very specific and it's not cheap. Um, and if you were to say like, look, no, we're not going to do this thing. We're going to do this other thing that actually affects lives. I'd be like, yeah, you know what? Burn every crosswalk in the con- in the country. I don't care. Build the community center. Mm-hmm. However, um, there are some places that don't have the funding for that. There's some places that don't have the population for that. There, there. The small town that my dad grew up in, population 800 people, doesn't have enough people to support a doctor, one family doctor. You have to drive 45 minutes out of town to the next closest community, which is large enough for two doctors. So, I mean, like, I understand that you need a certain population density to justify certain kinds of services. And, you know, Westlock, 5,000 people may not have that that density, 
but still, you know, the general principle of, of flagpoles and crosswalks really play second fiddle to real resources. And only certain communities actually do put money into real resources, which is a bit unfortunate. And it's, you know, people getting upset because, you know, they're, they're not putting the right symbols out there. I don't know. It, that that doesn't really move me as much as, you know, if they were saying we're no longer going to fund the local community center because of, I don't know, we hate the gays like that. That would upset me. It's it's a very different story. Um, but if it is just an issue, like. It's all about context, you know, basically, if they're just saying there's no funding for it, I'd be like, you know what? There, there's no funding for it. You know, the, the country's going through a bit of a slump mm -hmm. right now. It's fine. You know, if you're going to say we will revisit this issue in five years, it's fine. It's just a matter of, of how you go about doing it. There's a real optics issue, not only in doing it, but also in not doing it, how you're not doing it, or if you're doing it, why you are doing it. Is it just optics? Is it just virtue signaling? Or is it actually something uh, material behind that? I don't know. The other, we talked about how these rainbow crosswalks might be virtue signaling that, uh, hey, this is a great place we believe in the gays mm -hmm. um, we know that you are here but likewise what concerns me is that by actively choosing from that community to remove these signals these symbols yeah. by yeah, taking yeah. these by saying we don't want any of that in this town yeah yeah, yeah. that sends its own very clear message yes to not only homosexuals in Alberta who are now probably taking Westlock off their list of places to visit. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but also, I imagine that there are some folks in Alberta who are going, oh, wow, fine. You know, they've finally seen some sense. Mm -hmm. That's a town I can go and take my, you know, go and live in. There is... I worry about yeah. the town becoming more unforgiving yeah as it is seen as a virtue signal to those who disagree with public expressions of homosexuality that is one of the details about the story that kind of sat with me a little bit odd they're they're not saying they're not going to upkeep it anymore they're saying they're going to remove it because if you're saying we're not going to upkeep it after it fades we're just going to paint it white that is a we have decided to funnel our funds elsewhere yeah, yeah, as opposed to we are going to remove it, which is that is that that has a different message. Yeah, well, we will be keeping an eye on that story and others from across Canada over the coming days. We are going to be playing now with uh, "Overcome" by Choco in the Rosemary. I believe this is a, a great band, three-piece band out of Victoria, BC. They have a beautiful logo. I think I'm happy, at least for the time being. I am in the sun, but not yet burning. I puddle around you, evaporate like most you. With hopes that I can't take summer clothes to you. Control the burn, and when it starts to fade, remember purpose is created by a brain. Dramas that we can't seem to erase. Know how deep it is. 
Welcome back to Cangri, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the hour, we are deep diving into uh, what hopefully we can inspire the government to check the back of the couch, um, you know, look in the glove box of all of their various black sedans and see if they cannot find a little bit more cash to make this program move forward. Now, I am very excited to be joined by uh, Jody Jolimo, who is the uh, executive director of uh, Katie, which is Canada's source for HIV and Hep C info. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Luke. Now, cliff notes for the audience listening. Now, there was a an initiative um and uh, i don't have the numbers super handy with me right now but essentially the government uh offered big old envelope of cash specifically to roll out hiv testing actually i've whilst i said that i've pulled up the numbers uh just so the audience uh the public health agency of canada provided canqueer with uh, some information on it in November 2020, they authorized for the first time ever the use of at-home self-tests for HIV uh, in Canada. Uh, in 2022, in August, the minister announced more than 17 million to support HIV testing, including 8 million of which uh, for 2022-2023 to support and distribute HIV self-tests and approximately uh, 8.7 million for the National Microbiology Lab to build a process, said tests. 
Um, and then if I recall correctly, they extended it uh, in 23 to 24. So the year that we are currently in uh, to the tune of another 8.6 million, give or take, to, commune, uh, to continue this efforts. Now, what we've been told uh, from folks over at Katie is that uh, you were sending out, and correct me if I'm wrong here, around 200 of these kits every couple of weeks. So th that clearly is, is demand. Yeah, there is demand. And I mean, 200 every couple of weeks is only my organization. We're one of many across the country. I believe hundreds are actually distributing the self-test kits. And, um, and, and we know that in the last year, over 200,000 of these test kits have been ordered. So there is demand 100%. And I should say, Luke, it's not that the test kits aren't continuing. Uh, they will be available, and they were before the, the government invested in this project. What's not continuing is the infrastructure that we built over the last 18 months to essentially promote the test kits, to deliver them, to distribute them in ways that are, you know, um, population specific, where you can see uptake. And you can imagine a project like that takes a bit of time too, right? So it, there's a runway. And then, so for our, our sector, we were, we knew that this was a, a limited investment, uh, but we thought if we could prove to the government that it worked, that they would continue the funding. And you know, by their own admission, the project has worked. Uh, they acknowledge that we have reached people that hadn't tested before. Almost half of the people who 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 take these test kits home have never tested for HIV before, right? So these are really great numbers from a from a project um, perspective. So of course, we got our hopes up as a sector that the funding would be continued. And I should add, I'm old enough I can give you a little history lesson if you don't mind, which is that you know this investment of 17 million, of which only 8 million went to community. Uh, the rest went to laboratories and things like that, right? 8 million went to community. This was the first new funding we'd seen in over a decade, despite the fact that the federal government signed on to international commitments in 2016. And that wasn't the previous government. That was our, our, our current government. They signed on in 2016. But after that, there were no new funds there was they, they signed on to commitments, but really didn't put any resources behind it. So we were excited when we saw an injection of cash to go out and distribute this new testing technology that we had. But, um, you know, to not continue that funding, which we know was being used by organizations to link people to care, which is one of the places that were falling down, again, by the government's admission, we're not linking people to care as, as much as we need to. Uh, we were using that money as a sector to do that. We were hiring outreach workers and peer navigators and people that could not only do the testing and support the testing, but then link people to care. And that's the investment we need. So I hope you're right. I hope they turn over the right couch cushion and they realize that if we're going to get to 2030, if we're going to actually make the commitments or sorry, uh, live up to the commitments that they made, it will require an investment. And this isn't a perpetual investment. This is a short-term investment to really get the tools that we have, we've got all the tools we need in this country, into the hands of the right people. That's what's not happening right now. And we need cash to do that. Now, the government of Canada, under, you know, you mentioned it, it's, it's this, uh, this government, it's hard to believe they've been here since 2015, but this government, uh, the, the, the Trudeau Liberals, uh, have signed on, as have many other governments, 
uh, to the UN AIDS 2025 targets. That's 95% of people uh, living with HIV knowing their status, and then 95% of those receiving treatment, and then 95% of those undetectable being untransmittable. So the 95, 95, 95. I don't believe we're at 95% of people knowing that they have HIV yet. And that's that's the piece of this puzzle that I that, that I'm getting the sense here that this in, investment by the government of Canada was really kind of targeted towards. So you know you've done this program you mentioned for about 18 months now. Um are you moving the needle on that? Is it, you know, are we actually seeing that that number of people who for maybe the first time ever uh, are becoming aware of their status and then able to respond to that? Yeah, so because of the nature of the test kits, these are intended to be private, confidential, take them home, do them on your own, do them in the privacy of wherever. We don't actually know the results of people's tests, right? We have to rely on our evaluation data. But what we do know is when people take the test kits, they give us a bit of data about themselves. So we know that we're hitting target populations, folks that are impacted by HIV, Indigenous folks, uh, queer folks, uh, um, African, Black, Caribbean folks. Like These populations are, are more impacted by uh, HIV, and we know that they were accessing the test kits. We know that almost half of them were first-time testers. And so these are really good indicators of where we want to go and what we were hoping uh, to achieve with these test kits. But listen, the test kits, I, I want to be clear, these were not, this is not how we're going to end HIV. It wasn't just with self-testing, right? We need to then identify, we need to then link them to care, and we need to treat people. And we've got all of those tools. Uh, and what we were doing is we were taking this testing money and kind of stretching it, right? We were hiring outreach workers and things to be able to do the testing. But what those those boots on the ground were actually doing it is is the work that the community sector does, which it connects people to the services they need. I mean, it, you know, it makes me think. You know, let's say you're in uh, rural Ontario, you're you're uh, in Halliburton County, and you're listening to this, and you're thinking, "Wow, I'd love to." You know, I've you know had some some uh, what we like to refer to as uh, adult fun times. Um, and, you know, maybe because knowing is important. On the show in the past, uh, we've talked about the impacts of not knowing could have on your health. We've talked about the legal cases that come from not knowing. You know, ignorance is not an excuse in the law. Um, and just, like I said, circling it back to that health piece. It's so important to be to be aware. So let's say I'm in Halliburton and I want to uh, want to get uh, you think maybe this is the time that I should reach out and, and get a test. You know, I could talk to my family doctor, who you've probably known for several generations, probably the same family doctor that treated your mother and, you know. Your you know, auntie, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, you know, that's not as comfortable an environment. Um, I, you know, I can understand the, the hesitations that folks will have. You talked about stretching that funding and putting some of that infrastructure in place and that, you know, you refer to it as a bit of a runway. And I, I want to build on that a little bit for our audience. It's not just, you know, people signing up saying, I'm in Halliburton, please send me a test. I imagine you've had to, and all the other agencies have had to staff up to be able to accommodate this. You, you know, you touched a little bit on the outreach um, and the training and education. You know, I assume you may have some folks reaching out to you 
figuring out, you know, I've done the test, what happens next, you know, with, with that information being in, in either direction, you know, is, are you concerned that when these test kits and the funding uh, runs out, um, that you're going to have to downsize back again, you know, when, when this funding becomes no longer available? So a couple of things there, Luke. One, if you're in Halliburton and you want a self-test kit, you go to selftest.katie, which is C-A-T-I-E dot C-A, and we'll ship you one free of charge to your house in very discreet packaging. So that's how you can get your, your test kit done. And I encourage you to do that because we have really great treatments to both prevent and treat HIV. So if you are at risk and you know you test negative, there's an opportunity then to go in and talk to a clinician about maybe getting on PrEP or, or, or something like that. And you know, for our audience, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's uh, uh, essentially an HIV drug that prevents HIV if it's taken uh, regularly or, you know, how it's supposed to be taken. And then um, it, in terms of treatment, people live long, healthy lives now, right? Like, and that's what we want people to know is HIV is not a death sentence. Some folks still think that you, you don't need to be afraid of HIV, but you do need to know if you have it because it is something that's doing damage and you don't even realize. It. And by the time you realize it, uh, you know, it's a lot more difficult to treat. It's still possible, but it's a lot more difficult to treat. And there's a lot of damage that's been done at that point. Uh, so I really encourage people, if you think you, you've been at risk because of, you know, sex or substance use or anything like that, go to selftest.kd.ca. In terms of scaling back, uh, some of us who have um, adequate funding, like my organization, Katie, uh, we're a big national knowledge broker. We run an ordering center regardless, right? So we have an ordering center where you can go and order all kinds of information about HIV, Hep C, and the overdose uh, crisis and get information there. We already have that infrastructure in place. So we will continue to offer the self-test kits and we'll find some way to pay for the shipping. Now, are we going to be able to go out and buy radio ads in Indigenous communities like we had in the past? Will we be able to, you know, uh, promote these test kits online and in person in certain communities that need to know about them. No, that's where we will we'll see a retraction, not just from Katie, but from our frontline organizations. And that's the trouble is that the highly motivated people will find these test kits, mm -hmm. right? But they're not this last. You mentioned the 95, 95, 95 goals, right? Well, we're about 90 uh, in terms of testing. So we're talking about 10% of folks uh, have HIV and don't know it, or rather 10% of people with HIV don't know it. And, um, and we need them to get tested. And if they're not getting tested, there's a reason for that, right? Either they don't trust the system, they don't think they're at risk, they don't have uh, availability to an HIV test, their auntie is the one who does the test, like there are a number <laughs> of barriers. This test kit offered one of those, but we were also using the funding to address some of those other barriers as well. You know, I think it's, I, I, you know, I implore our listeners if if they feel that, uh, like you said, due to uh, sex or, or drug use or, or any of the other risk factors that they feel they may, uh, it might be worthwhile, please go out and get tested. Um, because it puts your loved ones at risk as well, you know, and, and that's really, and and to, to bring it back to kind of the big global picture is if everyone who has HIV is aware of it, 
then we can, you know, slow down and and uh, hopefully stop the kind of uh, unwitting spread of uh, of HIV. And that's really the goal. You know, the best yeah. way to end this is to to know knowledge is uh, is going to be the the power here. Now it's interesting because you folks are a bit of a knowledge broker on this uh, on this subject, uh, especially with the with the government of Canada. You know, you mentioned that you were hoping that with this investment, you can prove that it works. And fingers crossed that translates to, you know, Health Canada and, and the, the, the the federal government, particularly the politicians, you know, 8 million. That's, you know, one wheel on an F-30 jet, you know what I mean? Like that's... Yeah, and we're talking, this is spread out across the nation, uh, you know, 10 provinces, three territories, hundreds of organizations, $8 million was not a lot of money. You're right. And I hope the next couch cushion they turn over is a bigger one. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm encouraged. I'm glad to hear that they told you that they were going to try to look for some money. Uh, I ran into the Minister of Health recently. He committed to a meeting in April, and he asked me to bring forward a proposal from the sector Uh to how we're going to get to 2030. So we're working with our national partners. We meet as a national advocates group to kind of hammer out uh, what exactly we think will uh, ensure that we meet our commitments, those 95, 95, 95 targets. Uh, but also, you know, the goal is elimination in, in 2030, uh, which, you know, we know we, we will never completely eradicate uh, HIV and hepatitis C, but it's possible to make them uh, controlled and no longer public health threats like we have done other illnesses. Uh, so we're, we're certainly, uh, we're optimistic uh, that they're going to live up to their commitments around that. Well, I just want to confirm that uh, we had a statement uh, sent to us by the press secretary for the Minister of Health. Uh, and I'll quote here, and we are exploring all options going forward, end quote. So, and then uh, PHAC, the Public Health Agency of Canada, said something very similar uh, in terms of trying to find um, the funds. Now, I will clarify that no one in the government has referenced checking the couch cushions. That may have been, <laughs> may have been a, a little embellishment on my end. Uh, so we won't we won't get to that point. But I think the point is really there. And uh, we know that the UK and a lot of other countries are doing huge progress on uh, addressing the spread of HIV. And fingers crossed, Canada can do so too. Do you have any closing comments uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, we, we you know, it, it's. I just want to build on that last point you made, which is we are a very wealthy country. We should not be seeing um, things like congenital syphilis or, or syphilis at all in our country. Uh, people shouldn't be getting HIV anymore. We have the tools we need. We just have to employ them. And, uh, and I think that's really important for people to understand. I think sometimes these things seem so daunting. Uh, and and it is, uh, but the reality is we don't have to do the research on developing these tools. We've got them. We know how to prevent HIV. We know how to treat it. We just really now it's a people issue. We've got to connect people to care, and and that's across the board. Um, it, it, this next push, I like to remind people, like this is the hardest, right? We got the low hanging fruit, the ninety percent. The last push is going to be the most difficult. It's going to be most complex and the most expensive. So bring your checkbook. I. You've inspired another question, though, and a part of me is thinking, you know, we, we're a gay radio show, and, and therefore the subject of HIV and AIDS is something that has been consistent for decades. And 
I think that there are older generations where this very much was front of mind. You know, um, uh, an anecdote I'll share with our audience is, uh, you know, somebody asked a, a while ago about why there are so many intergenerational relationships in the gay community. So young folks with uh, much older folks. Uh, and it has to do with the fact that an entire generation in the middle were wiped out by the AIDS crisis. And then, you know, things have stabilized, obviously, in the, in the decades that followed. But the HIV and the gay community have been intrinsically linked. And my question really is for you is, is what's the sense that you're having with this youngest generation? You know, our Gen Z folks, the folks who are entering their, you know, the, the peak of their sexual lives right now, where this hasn't necessarily been a front page news topic. Um, it may not have permeated the culture in the way it has previous generations. I realize this is very much a left field question from the interview, but I think when we're talking about that last 10%, you know, new folks entering the, the world of adult fun times, you know, how do we make sure that those folks are also safe, sane and uh, consensual? Yeah, you're right. And uh, so that's that's sex ed, right? Or that's like community organizations talking about sexual health. Uh, and we know that that's like highly political in this country. And any type of sex ed is very uh, politicized. And if you try to put queer sex in there, it becomes even more politicized. And we're seeing those battles happening across the country. And, and I think... Um, you know, then that leaves a few options uh, for people to learn about uh, HIV prevention and, and sexual health, because it's not just HIV, right? Like you, you, you've got to test for other things. And I think, um, I don't know, I'm optimistic around that. I don't think we see the same divide around age. I think where we see it is around privilege. And there are privileged young folks that are uh, have private health care or have access to prevention options, uh, either through, you know, their their work or their um, like their their public program. Um, but where we're seeing it more is is around lines of like um, it really whether or not you're connected to care. So like and there are communities that aren't connected to care. And uh, and that's where we're seeing more HIV infections now. It's no longer uh, bankers, doctors, people like that. They're able to go out and, and access the prevention tools they need. So what it means is it's not impacting gay men in the same way, uh, but it is still impacting some gay men. We know racialized gay men, uh, a lot of new immigrants, uh, people who may not understand uh, the language well. Like there, there are certain pockets of HIV and um, and that's why community organizations are best served to reach them. Now, I know that um, in the statement we got from Katie uh, on this, it references the 6,500 uh, estimated indigenous folks who are currently um, believed to be undiagnosed with HIV. And I believe one of your board members is, has kind of really stepped up to, to be able to speak on this. But, you know, pivoting a little bit, uh, in my final question here to Indigenous folks, and you you mentioned, you know, those targeted radio ads. Is this a hard-to-reach population where this money and this funding has hopefully made a difference? 
Um, so is it a hard to reach pop? Are, are Indigenous folks hard to reach? Not all Indigenous folks, certainly not. Um, but uh, rural, remote, isolated folks, um, people that may not be connected to care because they've been displaced for whatever reason, intergenerational trauma, substance use. These things are, are not just unique to Indigenous folks. They're also like queer communities experience higher rates of those things as well. Um, and, and we know that um, HIV you know, thrives in, in those type of environments. And uh, so, yes, um, Indigenous people are disproportionately impacted by HIV in this country. And certainly, uh, we had a number of Indigenous groups uh, who were involved uh, in the self-testing project and distributing it, and will continue to be in some capacity, but that will probably be reduced. Well, fingers crossed that uh, the... Uh, government uh, is hearing this. Um, at the very least, I will forward that our interview over to the minister um, and maybe they'll be inspired to check those couch cushions. All right, we'll be back a little late in the show with the executive director of the Canadian Ace Society as well on this. Uh, thank you so much, Jody, for joining us and we'll be back just
Welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. We are diving into the subject of at-home HIV self-testing kits uh, this week. And joining me, uh, I'm very excited to have Ken Miller, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian AIDS Society. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you very much for including us on this important issue. Well, as uh, as we mentioned in the top of the show, the uh, federal government had provided about eight point uh, about eight million in the first round, eight point six ish in the second round uh, to get these at home self testing kits into the hands of those who uh, you know would make the most use of them. Now, the government isn't going door to door saying, would you like a self-test kit? They're relying on agencies such as yours and agencies uh, such as your members to distribute these kits. Can you tell us a little bit about how Canadian AIDS Society and your members have rolled out this program? Yeah, so I mean, like, as far as Canadian AIDS Society involvement, um, we haven't been extensively involved in this uh, specific project, uh, we're really involved along the lines of like International Testing Week or International Testing Day, like campaigns and such. Um, so really I have to give it uh, to like CBRC, Katie and Reach, who are really spearheading and can for spearheading this project. It's really quite amazing and has a lot of impact. Um, in terms of our member organizations though, um, this actually comes as very unfortunate news, right? So we're talking about the, the community organizations who are the folks on the ground who are really rolling this out and ensuring that the test kits are getting to where it needs to go. And at a time when people are, I guess you can say, uh, prioritizing HIV less and less, uh, which means funding is being eroded, I just don't see the benefit of continuing to road those that funding but also continuing to expect the services are provided by those same organizations right um it it puts further stress on the system it it harms the ability to actually care for the people that we're here for within the movement um and and i think it'll have a, a large impact on like those populations that are really depending on this type of project or this program right I think that's an excellent point. Now we asked uh, the ED of Kerry earlier about you know what happens when this when the funding stops, and they indicated that hopefully they'll continue. I, I believe that they will continue to distribute the kits, um, but you know we'll have to somehow absorb all of those costs. And I think that's what we're talking about here: an expectation from potentially the government here that these agencies will continue to provide the service but maybe the government no longer wants to pay for them. Um, in a sector that struggles with burnout, in a people-serving sector, what kind of impact is that going to have on your members? This expectation that, uh, you know, maybe there's no more government support coming, but, you know, there is perhaps a, um, a misplaced belief that these agencies will continue to do the work anyway. I think in terms of our members, yeah, we want to. They want to provide these services, and so that expectation is like probably not going offhand or whatever, right? Like I think it's probably safe to say they will do their best and they will roll this out as as possible. But that that strain that's already on the sector is somewhat unfair to just expect to continue on, right? Mm -hmm. I think 
really another piece that I would like to speak about is where else are we going to see this impact, right? What are the communities actually going to, how are these communities going to be impacted, right? So if we look at this organizational impact, there's also the person impact, right? So looking at what are the histories, where is the history of harm that actually affects communities from not participating with regular uh, healthcare settings, right? How are these communities going to be affected by a program that actually allowed them to continue service without interacting with those previously harmful or even currently harmful kind of institutions, right? Uh, this is one of the best workarounds I've ever seen for having to, like, for being able to have a service and not fully go into these situations that can be incredibly uncomfortable. Being able to just find out at home, you know, that can be a game changer. That can really go, you can go from being unaware to tested and knowing and knowledge is absolutely key and, and, and fundamental here. We touched a little bit on Indigenous folks uh, earlier, but I think it's interesting because it's not just Indigenous folks, it's anyone who hasn't had uh, sort of historical ongoing access to, to frontline healthcare. Well, it's a continuity of care, right? Because if somebody does test positive, I mean, autonomy in their own decision to move forward is important, but also the ability and the knowledge that it's possible to move forward is equally as important, right? We have a, an incredibly important um, a project that uh, the public health agency has recently funded around U equals U, uh, undetectable equals untransmittable. This is a, a huge message to be able to get into the hands of folks. But finding out you can be undetectable is not like really beneficial if you're never able to get tested to know you have HIV in the first place. One thing needs to lead to the other and the opportunity to have the services in between is incredibly important to the continuity of care and the outcome of like a more positive life and and mental health and and well-being for everyone involved and impacted. Each year they've dropped about 8 million on this. Um which to you know the layperson is an awful lot of money. Um but to the you know the federal government of Canada is it's a rounding error on uh, on a COVID benefit. You know what I mean? Like it's not uh, it's not a huge amount. How optimistic are you that uh, not only there's a bit of a two part question? How optimistic are you that not only can this initiative, the at home testing and the 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 getting these kits into the hands of folks, um, can be proven to be effective and work? But also, how optimistic are you that that evidence will result in in ongoing or, or further funding? I mean, even just looking at like, I'm in a remote and rural area, right? I'm outside of Thunder Bay, Ontario, in a town. We don't have a clinic in this town. It's not that far for me to go and get services. But when I worked in that frontline service at Elevate NWO, we did roadshows outside of the city, right? And so this was interesting because we went to many different communities. We we could drive from one side of the catchment area to the other nine and a half, ten hours, right? Having the opportunity to receive care from an outside source once or twice a month was huge for them, but also just not enough, right? Bringing in this next layer of a self-test kit, where people are now able to be provided those services on their own terms throughout the entire year when they don't have access is so much more important. Looking at 
people in Toronto, how many times or places can you go to get this service? Ample, everywhere, right? Maybe not everywhere, I shouldn't say that. Mm. But quite often, places like this, we're talking every few months, a couple times a year, where you are, where some folks are comfortable enough to access those services, right? Huge, huge difference. And so if the service is not further allowed in areas like this, especially, we're not going to have a full picture of like what the impact is or the kind of care that we need to provide even. Well, hopefully the uh, the federal government um, can see that, that this that this works. I, the sense I've gotten from yourself and from Katie is the outreach has been really targeted towards not the populations that are already uh, quite well served, but specifically the populations who are unserved or underserved, and uh, this could be a huge um, huge benefit. I just, I, I really hope that folks see the the benefit to this. And yeah, uh, we always need help advocating for these types of things. And so anyone that does see the benefit, please reach out to your MPs, your MPPs, government officials, talk to somebody, right? Make it a point to to really push this, uh, this issue forward because changes don't happen if nobody's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much, um, Ken, for joining us. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. And um, we'll be back just after this. And that was our great discussion earlier with uh, the Canadian Aid Society. Now, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, we had Teeth by Ruby Doom play a little earlier in the show. And uh, we have run out of time, but I wanted to give folks a bit of a heads up on some of the other things that we are working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the next month or so, we'll be doing a dive into the health of uh, LGBT businesses. Uh, we have a couple mm-hmm. of interviews lined up on that one. Uh, Dr. Tom Hooper, from uh, who really helped to expose the allegations of fraud against Toronto Pride will be coming mm-hmm. in and joining us and talking about that. Lots more content coming from it. Um, we are also working on a newsletter that folks can subscribe to where we will capture uh, the gist of our big investigation, well, our big uh, conversation topics, um, mm-hmm. such as the role or the uh, non renewal of the funding for these HIV soft kits. You can go to queer.news. Uh, to find more details. Uh, We're playing out with Courage by Mitchell McCoons. I have been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. As the robins sing All I can think about is money If I'm gonna make it If I should even try to find my way Navigate the water Time is in question I need help Creator, give me courage Cause I'm scared as hell Everything keeps changing I'm unsure of myself Don't know where I'm going But I know just what to find Looking for a little piece of mind
on disappearing days I wonder if the railroad will let me take a break from these chains I'm too young to be helpless, scared of being selfish and treating you that way Creator give me courage, cause I'm scared as hell Everything keeps changing, I'm unsure of myself Don't know where I'm going, but I know just what to find Looking for 